Hi everyone, you're listening to the EFG podcast, Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Afsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So um, we have a, a special podcast uh, today, a presentation from our Investment Summit. This is, was the EFG and New Capital Investment Summit that was on the 8th and 9th of January 2024. Uh, very interesting presentations and uh, we thought that uh, for those of you who weren't there, we give you a, a, an excellent opportunity to listen in to some of the best minds in uh, financial markets, economies, geopolitics, uh, and of course, personal uh, themes around personal development. So that certainly would be uh, very interesting for, we felt, for all of you. So let's listen into the presentation by Dan Clifton, who is the partner and head of policy at Strategis. And uh, of course, the focus is on the outlook for uh, the US election and global politics. Uh, Dan is obviously a regular contributor to the uh, Beyond the Benchmark podcast. No doubt we'll also have him later in the year. But in the meantime, let's listen in to Dan Clifton. Well, thank you for that introduction. And I just got to say, I had to be here in person because this is going to be the greatest election of our lifetime. <laughs> and I want you to go through it. There's nobody in America who's happy right now about what's happening in this election. But what I want to do is just walk through what I see happening uh, in, in the U.S., not just on the election. We'll talk about the election towards the end. But I think there's some really important dynamics going on uh, from a fiscal, from a monetary, and from a geopolitical situation. I know that you just had a presentation on geopolitics, but you know, our general view is that the frameworks by which we analyze how policy impacts markets has really changed over the last couple of years, that we're moving out of the post-Cold War period to the post-post-Cold War period, which is going to look a lot more like it did in the 80s before the Berlin Wall went down, that we're moving to a multipolar world, that we're probably going to have a trend growth rate of inflation closer to 3% instead of 2%. And it's going to be very hard to be able to do all the fiscal spending and tax cuts that we've been able to do since uh, over the last 30 years or so. And so we have this shifting policy framework. And it's being driven by the fact that we had inflation in 2021. When we had inflation, we had higher interest rates. When you get higher interest rates, you get a higher debt servicing cost on your debt. When you get a higher debt servicing cost on your debt, then you get austerity. And that's really the next stage of what's coming. And when you get austerity, the people who hate America, the other countries, get to do bad things. And you're starting to see that play out around the world, where you're starting to see it happen in Europe, you're seeing it in the Middle East, and it's eventually going to be coming to Asia. So these are challenges. I'm not bearish or pessimistic in any way around it. And what I want to do is just kind of walk you through this political environment. The first thing in light of this, let me see if this works, is that this year is going to be a historic year for global elections. I have been going around and telling people it's going to be the largest election year in world history. What we mean by that is that by our calculations, more people will vote in 2024 around the globe than any other year that we have in recorded history. These are important elections in various places. The United States is obviously one of them. But they're happening in what I call the onshoring countries or the reshoring countries, Taiwan, India, uh, Mexico. There's the European parliamentary elections. So you have populism growing in the US and Europe and a lot of elections that are going to be happening there. I'm not sure we call Russia an election, so to speak. 
But you basically got about 40% of world GDP just choosing new presidents. And the only other year that we could find as a percentage of GDP that is higher than this is, uh, is in 2012 when the, you had both the U.S. and China changing or voting on their head of state. And I think that was a really important year in world policy. That's when Xi became in power in China. And I think we're going to look back and say that was a real inflection point in world history. So this could bring massive change, massive differences in policy as we go through the year and you start to see those elections, the first one being on Saturday with the Taiwan election and everything that brings with us. What's interesting is that we believe that the U.S. election will have global impacts. So one, we have a lot of global elections, but what happens in the U.S. will impact the globe. This is a chart of the Mexican stock market relative to the S&P 500 and the odds of Joe Biden winning the White House. They're basically very similar. This is a chart of the India stock market relative to the S&P 500 with the odds of Trump winning the White House. Both of these charts make totally intuitive sense to us. Trump is going to go nuts on Mexico if he wins. Tariffs, immigration, fentanyl. And so the market is already pricing in the election, which is the first takeaway. But two, they see Biden as more favorable. With India, the market already sees that Trump is going to be tougher on China. And if Trump is tougher on China, then India will benefit from the reallocation of the supply chains overall. This is not just happening on a global stage. It's happening actually in the United States on a sub-industry level. This is the semiconductor stocks relative to the S&P 500 and Biden's odds of winning. Because if Biden wins, he'll have it, the semiconductors will be able to get more of their products across the globe. But if Trump wins, he'll be more restrictive in that area. But you're starting to see the election already having an impact. And because of that, you have all these global elections happening around the world, there's gonna be enormous demand for fiscal policy globally in 2024 that uh, is happening at the same time central banks are trying to get inflation out of the system. This is just the U.S. It's really simple. If you have a recession two years before your re-election, you lose the presidency. Okay? If you avoid that recession two years before your re-election, you have won the presidency. It's as binary as you can get. We go back to 1912. So everything you're going to see over the next few months in the U.S., and I do think outside the U.S. and other places where there's election, is all going to be about stimulating the economy. I had to write a note today about $100 billion of new tax cuts that Congress is considering that will be on the front page of your newspapers tomorrow. Okay? And I mean, I'm getting the hate mail from clients like, what are you talking about? Like, you got a $2 trillion deficit. You're not going to be cutting taxes. But man, when Congress wants to get reelected, this is what they're going to do. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The reason this is happening is that Biden is not getting credit for the resilient economy in the U.S. This is Biden's approval rating and the two-quarter average of GDP. Historically, these two should move together. And what you see is they're actually breaking apart. It is so rare to see a president's approval rating go down when gasoline prices in the United States went down for 70 days in a row. Gasoline prices are the single biggest driver of what voter behavior is and vote, right? I know that sounds crazy, but that's what it is. This is, this is a chart that I put in here today because four years ago, Miles, I don't know if you remember, I put in the chart of Trump's odds of winning in the S&P 500. It was the same chart. Larry Kudlow gave it to 
uh, Trump and said, look at this chart. And Trump's like, I know, stocks love me. I'm the greatest for the stock market. Biden uh, has the same trend. Obama had the same trend. And George W. Bush had the same trend. Those are the four we have betting odds. It's very simple. Good economy, good stock market. Good economy, good chances of getting reelected. This is really interesting to us. This is a break. Just like there's a break over there. There's a break where Biden is just not getting the credit. Biden's approval rating today in the United States is lower than when Donald Trump was president at this point in his presidency. Almost impossible to get that low. So there is a, we just, we just don't like anybody, so to speak. Um, and, uh, and, and this has been a real problem. So what do you do? More is more is what you do. This is one of my favorite charts. The S&P 500 has not gone down in a presidential re-election year since 1940. Okay? And the reason this happens is because presidents who are in power are able to change and move the fiscal policy levers to be able to get the economy humming. In 2020, we had a recession. We had a 30% collapse of GDP, and stocks were still up by 20% or whatever that number is, 18% in 2020, because, man, they unloaded $6 trillion to save. Okay, And so there is something that is happening in presidential re-election years that don't happen in the other years. And let me show you this. This is the difference between a presidential re-election year in the U.S. and an open presidential election in the U.S. where there's no incumbent running. It's a 1,300 basis point different on the S&P 500 in that year when you have that. Pretty amazing, right? And so the question is, what kind of tools does Biden have in this year to mitigate a recession if it happens or to prevent a recession from happening? And they are plentiful. I was on CNBC the other day, and I mentioned the second one, and I got yelled at. Oh, are you trying to say Jay Powell's going to help Joe Biden win the election? No, but you have um, multiple rate cuts building into the market from the Fed cutting next year. The most interesting change is that you're starting to see talk about ending quantitative tightening in 2024. Quantitative tightening could be ended by June of next year. Now, you have this thing where... Treasury is borrowing on the short end of the curve. They're basically issuing massive T-bills. It is pumping massive amounts of liquidity into financial markets. Janet Yellen is doing that to prevent the problem that happened here in the UK with Liz Trust, where you had a big spike in bond yields. So she's figured out a way to get it. It's really affecting stocks and bonds, but it's actually providing a big cushion to the US economy. Then we had a US-China ceasefire on November 15th. The market loves when China and the U.S. are talking. Talking is better than not talking. But we did that in November of 2022, and it lasted about 10 weeks. And then this balloon was flying over Montana, and that ceasefire was over. Okay? And that, that balloon had the most sophisticated quantum technology you can imagine on it when they took a look at it. Um, we're now in another ceasefire, and already you're starting to see it break apart a little bit. And it's really starting to break apart since June 1st. So this is the one that I think is going to be least likely to hold. I have a climate change president, probably the most climate change-focused president in American history, and U.S. oil production just hit a new record last week. Okay, Because he, he's like, hey, I'll worry about that later, but we need low gasoline prices. And then what I think is going to be a big theme for 2024 is you have massive infrastructure spending coming in. You have the infrastructure bill, you have the Inflation Reduction Act, 
and you have the semiconductor facilities being built. These are bills that passed two, three years ago that are now starting to actually get the spend, and it's about $100 billion. And then you have a student loan cut coming into effect on July 1st. So these are all things that are happening. They're not hypothetical. They're basically happening at this point, and there's more to come from this. But I just want to show you how important liquidity is. This year, we provided $607 billion of liquidity. Okay? In 2022, we drained about a trillion dollars of liquidity. In August, the Treasury had to make a decision. Their deficit was growing. The Treasury decided to issue more long-term bonds. The market went absolutely insane because that money has to come out of bank reserves. Immediately, the dollar went up. Immediately, bond yields went up. And of course, stocks went down. And then on November 1st, Janet Yellen got there and said, well, just kidding. We're going to go back on the short end of the curve. There are very few moments in history where you can point to one, one event changing stocks. And look at this. From August 1st decision to November 1st down, then up. Everything changed on November 1st. It was nine weeks of bliss from November 1st on. And she's saying, I'm going to finance everything on the short end of the curve. We had 102 basis point reduction in the 10-year yield after she made that decision. By the way, she was totally aided by Jay Powell, who stood up there and said, we're not going to raise rates anymore. And the combination of that one-two punch and what we were saying is Janet Yellen saved Christmas. And now, now what? And now what is that geopolitics and politics are going to have a bigger impact. This free lunch is over. But let me show you this. Liquidity in the dollar. They've just been moving together in the post-COVID world. This is liquidity and the 10-year yield. I mean, it's just beautiful stuff if you watch it. And they're saying they're going to provide more liquidity. That means lower bond yields. That means lower dollar. That means higher stocks. And what you're seeing now is a fight developing between the Fed and the Treasury because the Fed is saying you're loosening financial conditions so much. Wow, I'd pay for that. Jay Powell versus Janet Yellen. That would be better than Donald Trump versus Joe Biden's first debate. And so the Fed sees inflation coming down. This is the money supply in CPI. Money growth has been negative for a while. There's about a 16-month lag on it. The Fed is pretty confident that as we go through 2024, inflation will come down. This is housing, and they basically have about an 18-month lag before housing starts feeding into CPI. This is why everybody's talking about cutting rates in the United States. This is why people are saying that they could be cutting rates as early as March. It's the real Fed funds rate. So every day that goes on that the Fed is not cutting rates, uh, the real Fed funds rate is going higher. Recessions in America are caused by three factors. A high real Fed funds rate, an inverted yield curve, and lack of liquidity. And so we have plenty of liquidity, as I just showed you, but this will eventually lead them to cut just to stay neutral. And then this is bank reserves plus the reserve repo balance. This is all treasury plumbing. But when we hit these levels, the financial markets began to seize up the last time we were in quantitative teasing. Too many reserves came out of the system, and it created massive distortions in the repo market. So the Fed never wants to get anywhere near there. And as we start to drain the reverse repos, we're going to end up right around here. That's when they're going to end QT. This is the money that's being used to finance those T-bills. And so our big theme is that Janet Yellen is going to hand over the baton to Jay Powell in 2024. Jay Powell will provide the liquidity, and financial markets will have plenty of liquidity moving forward to try and avoid a recession. This is the infrastructure money that I referenced before. And then you have China. 
Donald Trump, in 2018, came out and said, I'm going to start putting tariffs on China right here. Right here. 21.1% of all tariffs into the United States, uh, all imports into the United States came from China. Today, that number is about 13.9%. This is a massive change that is happening, and it's really starting to change both how China thinks and how the U.S. thinks. China's producing more for themselves. The U.S. is producing more for themselves. This is just our strategic China trade basket that we built during the Trump years. It is an excellent proxy for U.S.-China relations. It's American companies. Here's the ceasefire. Here's the balloon in Montana. Okay. Here's our next ceasefire. And you see it's starting to turn over again. That's because China's talking about reunifying the motherland. Biden's talking about preventing uh, technologies that are used to build chips to go into China. And he stopped ASML last week from being able to send three new tools, right? So the, 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 the technology war is not ending, even if they're talking. I think the market's starting to sniff this out overall. What else can Congress do? And I put this chart in here. This is the Atlanta Fed GDP chart, uh, which tracks GDP in the U.S., and something called the Employee Retention Tax Credit. Most people have never heard of the Employee Retention Tax Credit. It is a COVID program. It pays small business owners $26,000 for every employee they save during COVID. Why people are claiming that today and not four years ago blows my mind. But in 2023, we gave out $150 billion in six months. Okay, now imagine if in March I said, hey, we're going to do a $300 billion tax cut. That's what we did on an annualized basis. And as soon as that money started getting distributed, you see GDP start to go up. Small business hiring go up. The reason why I'm showing you this, not to talk about what happened in the third quarter, but to inform you that there is about $240 billion of applications sitting at the IRS right now. The program is on hold because of fraud. No joke. You give out money from the government and there's fraud. Of course there is. Okay? But my point is, if the IRS restarts this program and gives out half, it's going to have a meaningful impact on the U.S. economy overall. And then finally, what we wrote about today is that Congress is thinking about giving out a child tax credit and business tax credits ahead of the election. So in the next day or two, you'll see a big announcement on this. It's about a $100 billion tax cut. And the reason why I show you this, this is after tax, after inflation income, and the percentage of vote each president got in their reelection. Other than Trump, which was distorted by transfer payments, this is a pretty linear pattern. The more you get that disposable income up, the more you get in your reelection. Giving out cash to people gets you votes. And that's what they're trying to do. Not just for the president, but for, for Congress as well. They have to be really careful because this is CPI and inflation in the 70s and today. And what you see is that whenever you get that first wave of inflation, you get a second wave, about 80% of the time. This is 1976, where we had this inflation cycle. Guess what they did in 1975, 1976? They handed out checks to people to win the election, and they reignited inflation right back up. Now, I don't think we'll reignite at that level, but Congress has to be really careful about reigniting inflation in 2025 by the decisions that they make in 2024. This is a lot of fiscal spending with a $2 trillion budget deficit and Treasury clearly having problems raising debt overall. So this is the way that we see it. And then we have these budget fights that are going to go on. 
I'm not going to go too into detail. It's going to be messy over the next two months. The ability of Congress to do the most basic things is as dysfunctional as I've ever seen it before. So that brings us to the election. Once we clear out the budget and that tax bill, it will be on to the election. I just want to be clear with everybody that America had 150 million American people vote in 2016 when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. That election was decided by 77,000 voters in three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. If 77,000 voters voted differently, Hillary Clinton would have been president over Donald Trump. In 2020, that percentage got even smaller. It was literally 65,000 voters in four areas. You can actually say it was 40,000 voters in Georgia, Wisconsin, and Arizona on a larger base of 160 million Americans. We have something called early voting now in, in the U.S., which gives the campaign 60, 90 days to get all their voters to the polls. When I was in politics, I had one day to get everybody to the polls. No absentee ballots. It was one day, and it was terrible. I got to Florida in 2004 for a presidential election. They were like, you got 11 days to get everybody to poll. I was like, I'll get the entire state of Florida to vote in 11 days. Now they have 90 days. And so what they do is they go and they get their first set of voters on day one. Their list gets smaller. Now they're more targeted. Now they're more targeted. Now they're more targeted. If that's the case, you'll always get your voters to the poll. Voter turnout's going up. Anybody who tells you democracy's at risk or voting's at risk, it's a complete opposite of what's going on in the U.S., as long as you have that early voting. But what has changed is the number of states that are deciding those voters. This is 10. Only 10 states have changed political parties over the last few election cycles. We think that this election is going to come down to six or seven states. Okay? So the least consensus view is somebody wins overwhelmingly, and there's a reason for that, and it's because of this. And so we are as 50-50 as a country as you can imagine. Here's where, here's where people throw tomatoes at me in the United States. Okay. This is Trump, and this is Biden. We did a call with the Trump campaign right around the first week of September, and they said, we've been polling Donald Trump for seven years since he wanted to run for president. We have never had better polling today. Hey, think about that. He had been indicted four times. He has 92 charges against him, and his polling was the best that they ever had. Okay? They never, ever wanted to win the popular vote. I mean, if they could, they would. But they always believed the only path for him to win the election was an electoral college victory. And they were like, Dan, if the election was held today, we would win the popular vote and the electoral college. What's happened since then is that this is all the public data, not their internal data. And the public polls, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of their polls solidified that. Now, I don't think the election's today. It's a year away. And I do think that Biden is starting to bottom out. I do think that the race is going to tighten up. But the big change over the last three months is investors figuring out that Trump could win this race. Six months ago, it was like, well, he's not going to win. He's going to jail. And that has changed. If you look at the betting odds as of 10 a.m. this morning, uh, Trump actually has a higher chance in the betting odds than Biden does to win the race. Okay? Now, things are going to change. I'm going to walk you through that. But I am dealing with two 80-year-old candidates that are deeply unpopular in the United States. 
I've never seen anything like this. Negative 20 for both of them. I spent 11 weeks on the road in the midterm elections, and I walked out of there and I wrote a note, and I said, there's no way Trump or Biden are going to be the nominees. Okay? <laughs> I, st I said, Man, I would go up there, I'd be up on a stage like this, and I'd be like, there's a chance that Trump and Biden are going to be the nominee, and everybody would boo. Okay? It didn't matter. Republican, Democrat, young, old, male, female. It didn't matter. Everybody hates them. And they are inching closer and closer to being the nominees. And I have this feeling in my gut that it can't happen. It just cannot happen. And we're getting closer and closer to it. Look at this. This is when I introduced third-party candidates into the polling. This is Robert Kennedy Jr. and Cornell West. They are basically grabbing 20% of the vote. That is an almost identical amount as Russ Perot in 1992. Okay? These are nobody candidates. If there is a true third-party race, then they are going to take a significant share and open up the range of outcomes if these two are the nominees. And so there's a group called No Labels. They are run by a guy named Mark Penn. Mark Penn ran Bill Clinton's 1996 campaign. He ran Hillary's 2008 campaign. He is running this group and says, if it is Biden and Trump, we will have a joint Republican-Democrat unity ticket run as a third-party candidate. Now, harder to do in practice than in, in theory, but that's what they're setting up for, and they think they're going to make a decision by March. If they run somebody like Senator Manchin from West Virginia, Senator Manchin can win Alaska and change the entire electoral college count that could prevent maybe a Republican from getting 270 electoral votes if something like that happens. That hasn't happened since 1884, and it becomes a vote in the House of Representatives. Each state gets one vote. Republicans run 23 states. Democrats run 27 states. Okay, or the Republicans run 27 states. Democrats run 23. But the Republicans then get to select Donald Trump as president through this arcane process that hasn't been used since 1884. The country will just burn. Okay, like, it, like mass polarization. And so my team is just sitting there coming up with all these tail risks that we never had to think about before because they're not the base case, but they're no longer 0% probabilities, so to speak. So this is a real game changer in terms of how we think about it. Trump also rigged the process knowing which states he was going to do well in. He made those delegates winner-take-all. He knew where he was going to do bad in, and he made them proportional, so he always gets delegates even in the states. Right? He was thinking about this stuff years ahead of time, and his primary challengers weren't thinking about it. And so he's got these inherent advantages. And by the way, he won't go to actual court on these charges yet until after he wins the nomination, but before the general election takes over. And we have like a chart that shows like 80% of people will vote before there's any decision on the fate of him. But it's a major investable event because if Nikki Haley wins the Republican nomination, the move in defense and healthcare stocks will be like whiplash because Trump is bad on these issues, Biden's bad on these issues, and she's, you know, like a moderate Republican who's going to be like, oh, I love it all. And these stocks are just going to, these stocks are just going to rip, rip and rip pretty, pretty hard, uh, so to speak. What will be interesting for investors is what happens in the Senate and the House races. Our whole thesis right now is that we're going to end up with no more than 52-48 in either party in the Senate. And we're going to have a very narrow house 
If that's the case, then I'm not doing more drug price controls. Then I'm not doing major tax increases. The gridlock is what's going to matter. And we picked this up meeting with most of the industry groups who are like, yeah, Biden, Trump. Yeah, we'll have some trade issues with Trump. Trump is talking about a 10% tariff on all imported goods into the United States, right? So this stuff matters. But on the policy, the real heart of the policy, you're probably going to have some sort of mixed government. This goes back 100 years, and it's the correlation between how a state votes for a president and Senate. We have had 100% correlation two cycles in a row. Pretty amazing. If a state votes for Trump, they also vote for a Republican senator. And if a state votes for Biden, they also vote for a Democratic senator. Republicans are on the offense in three states, Montana, Ohio, and West Virginia. Those are Trump states, and they're represented by a Democrat. Democrats are on zero. So there's a real chance that the Republicans are going to take the Senate and have a 51-49 or 52-48 advantage. Very narrow. You need 60 votes to pass most legislation. In the House, it's the quite opposite. 18 votes in the House that are represented by Republicans, but Biden won those districts in 2020. So we're heading into a gridlock election, regardless of whether Trump or Biden wins. And the big question is, is Trump or Biden going to be the nominee? The New York Post, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the New York Post. I read it every day. It's gossip a lot of times. I think that's why I read it for the gossip. They have great royal family stuff on, in there, too. Um, but uh, the, New York Time, uh, the New York Post has a story up that Michelle Obama is starting to get more politically engaged and, uh, today. And this is the big story circulating amongst our clients today. And the reason why that's important is that President Obama went to Joe Biden last week. They had a meeting at the White House, and Obama told Biden, you're going to lose. And you got to, like, fire your staff or your White House staff have to move to the campaign. But whatever you're doing, you're going to lose because Trump wants it more, and he's going to steamroll you. And nobody really believed that Michelle Obama ever had an interest in running, and I still believe that. And then all of a sudden, this story shows up in the New York Post about how she's worried about the election and starting to get more vocal on issues. If Michelle Obama wants to run for president, she will be president almost immediately. Okay, like it won't even be a contest. It'll win 55-45. Other than that, very hard to replace Biden unless he gets sick. Okay, now, if Trump loses the primary, they will carry Biden out of the White House, the Democrats, and make sure. Because if Nikki Haley's the nominee, she'll beat Biden by 10, 12 points. She'll win most states. Because that's how structurally damaged Biden is right now. So... What I'm leaving you with is an election. We don't know if the two candidates are going to make it to election day. All right? An election where uh, one could get convicted and the other one's son can get convicted this year. Okay? It's crazy. An election that has a great level of stability though if they're the two candidates because investors know both of their policies, right? And so if, if we're midway through and we're like, oh, you know what? Biden's like, I'm tired. Somebody else has to come in. The market has to then reevaluate. What's that mean for Medicare for all? What's that mean for bank regulation? 
and really has to start repricing how this election is. So in spite of all the uncertainty, there is still a lot of certainty around these two candidates. They're pretty transparent about what they want to do. And um, my sense here is that it's going to be a race about democracy. Biden is going to argue that Trump is an existential threat to democracy. And he's got to do that because everything else is working against him. It's the only issue that works for him. Trump is then going to have to argue, Biden, you're the threat to democracy because you're trying to prosecute me and remove me from the ballots because you don't want democracy. And that's the way Trump justifies being in court all the time. So this is, I'm just previewing how boring this debate is going to be, but how exciting this election really is going to be when you take into consideration all the range of outcomes, the third-party challengers, the legal cases, and the two most important people who are going to decide this election are not Biden and Trump, but it's Jay Powell and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, John Roberts. So it's going to be an amazing time. Thank you for having me here. I'm sure I missed a lot, but if anybody has any questions, if we have time for it, let me know. Thank you. So with that, thank you very much for listening in. And of course, um, listening to the future Investment Summit presentations that will be coming or indeed have already been played. Thank you very much.